Hi, everyone. You can make your way to your seats. I'm going to read our scripture this morning. It comes from 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. This is the word of the Lord. Short and sweet. 2 Timothy 3.16. Now, we've started this new series, Words to Live By. We're looking at 10 verses that every Christian should know. Um, and last, and my, my challenge to you is that because every Christian should know these, you should memorize them. And so last week we kicked it off with one that you probably already had memorized. And now at the beginning of each next week, we're going to go back and make sure we, we got the last one. Now, because there's nothing like a little bit of pressure, right, that doesn't... Uh, help us do something. And so uh, we're going to do last week's verse. It's not going to be on the screen. You just got to know it. Now you probably already know it because it was John 3.16. But here we go. Ready? For God. All right. Now we're, gonna, we're going for the ESV. All right. So now some of y'all had that in King James. Some, now and some of y'all had that in New Living. I don't know. But... Uh, but <laughs> For these, uh, no, I'm just kidding, you can do whatever you want. But that was good. So next week we're going to do that same thing for this week's verse, all right, which is 2 Timothy 3.16. So here's my question for us this morning. How do you know how you should live your life? How do you know what convictions you should have, what strong, unflinching beliefs you should have? How do you know when you're wrong? And you need to change your position or your thinking or your life. How do you know that your life, your thoughts, your, your worldview, the way you go about life is right? How do you know that you're not wrong? How do you know how to live? And how do you know that those who live and think and, 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 and function in a way that's opposite from you, how do you know that they're not actually right? It's June, and so it's Pride Month, and the world is telling us that we should that the only way that we can love is to celebrate our LGBTQ plus people and their lifestyles. Are they right? Are we wrong? How do we know? Richard Dawkins, the famous atheist, has often told mothers who's who've had baby their you know their their babies tested and have come back with genetic mal genetic problems, and he tells them that they should abort their babies and try again. Is he right? Are we wrong? How do we know? Oprah Winfrey, among others, has told us that there isn't one truth, there's not one way to God, but that all religions and all philosophies are true and all kind of create their own path to the same destination, the same God. That God is love and, and he comes to us through many ways. Well, are they right? Are we wrong? Well, will Judaism and Hinduism and Islam and even agnosticism, will they all get me to, to the same God the same way Christianity will? Are they all the same? Are, are we wrong? How do we know? Secular humanism tells us that, that we should just leave the world better than we found it. That each generation should just leave humanity and the world in a better state. Are they right? Is the present moment all there is? Is this moment what's all important? How do we know? In the age of the internet, you will intake more information than virtually almost anyone else in the history of the world. And we are bombarded every day with opinions and philosophies and thoughts and arguments. 
our kids and us see reels and TikTok videos arguing for the truth, arguing for how we should see the world, and how are we to know which ones are right? What do we test the world's thoughts and ideas and opinions against? Is there an absolute truth? Is there a standard? Is there some final authority that we can lean on for absolute correctness? A timeless, unchanging truth? I think there is, and I think it's the Bible. I think the Bible is the source of truth and ultimate truth. It is the ultimate authority on all things pertaining to life and godliness. And I think 2 Timothy 3.16 is one of these foundational verses that we should know because it anchors us. It anchors us as a reminder on where the truth is. It reminds us in times of wandering and doubts and questions of where we go to find truth. But before we dive into the verse... I need to address a philosophical problem first for you philosophical-minded people. You might be in here and you might say to me, Brent, you cannot prove that the Bible is a final authority by appealing to some verse that is inside the Bible that is circular reasoning. And I would say to you, you're right. It is circular reasoning. Circular reasoning is to say, hey, the color of that wall is gray. Well, how do we know? Because it's gray. It's circular. But all final authorities, what, no matter what it is, whatever has become a, the final authority in your life, by its very nature, must be circular. If for you, for instance, science is the final authority on all things, that you would appeal to science as the final authority, well, what do you appeal to to prove science to be that final authority? If you appeal to science to prove science, that's circular reasoning, which if it's your final authority makes sense. But if you therefore appeal to reason and logic as to why science is the final authority, well, now science is subservient to reason and logic. And reason and logic have become the final authority. If you say reason and logic are the final authority and you appeal to reason and logic to prove why logic is the final authority, well, that's circular, which is okay if you think that's the final authority. If you appeal to anything other than whatever you think is the final authority, the standard, you have made that to which you have appealed to the greater authority, the final authority. Some of you are lost. You're like, well, what's the point of this? What are you saying? Here's what I'm saying. While it is true that we can prove the historicity of the Bible, we can, appro- we can uh, 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 prove the accuracy of the manuscripts or the copies of the Bible, we can, uh, we can prove the historical accuracy of the accounts and all these other things about the Bible, we can do that. Those things in and of themselves can never prove that the Bible should be a final authority. They prove only that it can be trusted on some level. When choosing what will be our final authority, you might use logic, you might use reason, you might use history, you might use science to point to these things. But at the end of the day, every final authority, no matter what it is, is accepted by faith. No matter if your final authority is the Bible, science, logic, and reason, at the end of the day, it is accepted by faith. You see, my logic and my reason tell me that the Bible has every reason to be trusted and accurate and historically reliable. But at the end of the day... I have to have faith that God actually wrote all these things down and that they're true. Faith and reason work together, but it is faith that gets me over the finish line to believe it's my final authority. 
And that's true with anything. That's not just the Bible. Any final authority has to have faith at the end of the day. So with that being said, we're going to look at what we believe to be our final authority and what it says about itself. In 2 Timothy 3.16, all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. And we're going to take this word by word, thought by thought. First, all scripture. All scripture. What, we need to make sure we understand what he's saying here. All scripture is the 66 books of the Bible, the Old Testament and the New Testament. We know that the early church viewed these new, even the new writings of the New Testament as scripture because Paul in 2 Peter 3.16 uh, says this. He, he's talking about Paul. He says, he writes this way in his letters, speaking in them about such matters. Some parts of his letters are hard to understand, which ignorant and unstable people distort as they do the rest of the scriptures. So here, even when Peter is still alive, is referring to the writings of Paul as scripture. But I want to key in on one word here. The word all. Because the point Paul is making uh, concerning the nature of scripture, which we're going to get to, refers to all of them. Now this is important because there have always been attempts, and there are still attempts this day, to elevate some part of the scriptures over others. Paul says all scripture, and he's going to make an argument, a case about what, what, what about all scripture. But there is a case being made in, throughout history and today that we should elevate some above others. For example, Thomas Jefferson did this with the famous Jefferson Bible. Where he literally cut out with scissors all of the parts of the Bible he did not like or agree with. Particularly for him, it was a lot of the miracles and supernatural stuff, and he literally cut them out of the Bible. And we have that Bible on display in a museum somewhere. There was a movement among some Christians in the recent past who wanted to uh, make sure that modern, scientific-minded people could still become Christians and read the Bible and, and, and join the faith. But they didn't think they could do that if all of these supernatural things, these miracles, were in it because they didn't think science-minded people would accept those things. And so they began to say, you know what, all those miracles and stuff, that's just kind of like, you know, allegory. It's just kind of like metaphor. It's not true. So they undercut the Bible in that way. You've probably heard this argument today. This is the one that's happening right now. It typically goes like this. Well, Jesus never talked about, say, homosexuality. Only Paul talks about homosexuality. Jesus doesn't talk about it. Jesus never talked about it. And so it's really not an issue. Only Paul. That was kind of a pet peeve of Paul. Jesus didn't talk about it, so we're not going to take it seriously. But let me be clear. What we believe about one scripture, we believe about all the scripture. There is not more or less authority in this or that text of scripture. Uh, and that's going to become more clear in a moment as we get to see what Paul says. But we believe that all of the scripture is equally authoritative but let me, be, let, me, let, me, let me back up for a second because I think I need to say something that will be helpful. We believe that all the scripture is equally authoritative and equally the word of God. But that doesn't mean we read the Bible flat. And here's what I mean. Here's an example of something you'll often hear as a, a, an attack against Christians. They'll say, oh, Christians, they just pick and choose what verses to make a big deal about. 
You know, like the Bible says you're not supposed to eat pork or shellfish, but they just conveniently ignore those passages. But that's wrong. We don't just conveniently ignore those passages. If we thought that those passages were still uh, bearing on us today, we would not be eating bacon, which would be really sad. But we wouldn't do it. But that's a wrong view. It's not that we're just conveniently not elevating those passages or not following those. No, we actually believe that the Bible is an unfolding story, an unfolding revelation, right? It wasn't just written all at one moment like a textbook, right? The New Testament makes it very clear in Acts chapter 10 that those Old Testament food laws have passed away, that they were temporary civil laws for the state of Israel and no longer apply to us. We're not just conveniently saying, oh, I'll just ignore those sections. No, we're reading the Bible as the unfolding story that it is, not just as a textbook. It wasn't written like that. It has to be interpreted and understand as an unfolding story. And so, we don't just pick and choose. We think it's all authoritative, but we don't read it flatly. So, here's the point. All Scripture means from Genesis to Revelation. And if your Bible is in some other order than that, from whatever the first book is to whatever the last book is, the entire thing, the word all in the Bible in the Greek has a very interesting meaning. It means all. It's all of it. So every every word in this book is what Paul is about to talk about. And what's his first point? He says all scripture is breathed out by God. All scripture is breathed out by God. Now, in the Greek, this phrase, breathed out by God, is actually one word. It's the combination of two words kind of to make one new word. The word are theo and uh, and pneuma. And so it's theonustos. And and so the idea is theo, God, pneuma, spirit. Uh, It's the the, uh, uh, pneuma is where we get our word for like pneumatic tools, right? Air, right? Uh, And so it literally reads that all Scripture is God-breathed. One word, it is God-breathed. It's the same word used when uh, God, in in Genesis chapter 1, when God breathed life into Adam's nose. It's the same word used in Ezekiel 37 when Ezekiel prophesied to the bones and he prophesied to 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 the breath. And that the the dry bones became flesh and then began to live again. It's saying that every word of Scripture from Genesis to Revelation is the product of the Holy Spirit. God's breath produces the Scriptures. God's Spirit, the Holy Spirit, brought about every word of Scripture. So every word is Holy Spirit inspired. You know, when you, when you and I go to speak, what is happening is we take what's in our mind and we take what we want to say from our mind and we will those words into existence through our breath, right? That's how we speak. We take what's in our mind and we will it into existence through our breath. And that is exactly what Paul is saying about God, that the scriptures are the words in God's mind that he willed into existence by breathing them out speaking them onto the very pages of the Bible. But you say, Brent, people wrote the Bible. Like dudes like like Paul and Moses and Luke and Peter and over 40 different authors wrote the Bible. So how can we say that God wrote the Bible? Great question. 
2 Peter uh, one twenty one says, For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. They were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So, when any one of these guys was writing the, the books or the letters or whatever that was, would one day become Scripture, they were not writing of their own will, but they were being carried along by the Holy Spirit. Now, this doesn't mean that they went into some trance, you know, and their hand was just moving around, and they're like, oh, I've got this letter now, let me send it. No, no, they wrote from their own perspective, within their own framework of understanding and the knowledge they have, from the, from the grammar that they understood, but while they were writing, the Holy Spirit was guiding and inspiring and leading them to write the exact words of God that he wanted them to write. That is how we can have both a human author, but yet also, at the very same time, a divine author. That is why the Bible can be written by human hands, but be the very words of God. It is the reason Jesus' words in the gospel accounts, in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, those words are not more authoritative or more special or more important because because they're just Jesus' words. Sometimes you might have a, a red-letter Bible, right, where, the, where all the words of Jesus are in red. And that might be helpful, but it's also very misleading because every word in the Bible should be read. R-E-D. Remember first John, or John chapter 1? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Jesus is the Word. He is the very word of God, and so when God speaks, when the Spirit inspires, it is the words of Jesus. And so from from Genesis to Revelation, it is Jesus who is speaking. So we don't pick and choose what parts of the Bible we like or don't like. We don't cut out parts that are hard or uncomfortable or don't conform to our modern sensibilities. But rather we say all of the scriptures are God-breathed and are the very words of Christ. The Protestant Reformation was marked by five things, what have been known as the five solas, which is Latin for alone, so the five alones. And these five solas separate us from the Catholic Church. These are kind of the big five things that separate us from the Catholic Church. There's more, but these are kind of the big five. So we believe that salvation was by faith alone, and Christ alone, by grace alone, to the glory of God alone. And we know all these things by sola scriptura, through the scriptures alone. The scripture alone. The scriptures are our final and highest authority. There is no man, no pastor, no creed, no sermon, no priest, no bishop, no pope, nor anybody else but the word of God that is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, which is the truth we unwaveringly stand on. To see the Bible as merely a suggestion is to misunderstand what you read. To see the Bible as mere history is to misunderstand. To see the Bible as a book of moral principles or guidelines for life is to misunderstand. It is not just another religious book, but it is the very words of God on which we stand, on which we base our life, on which we arrive at moral judgments, on which we have found salvation, on which we know how to live. 
That is why the Bible is our final authority because we are to bring our entire lives underneath it, right? To be brought in conformity to it because the truths in it are timeless and forever and are absolute. You know, people say all the time, man, I just wish God would speak to me. I just wish God would speak to me. I wish he would give me a, a sign. Uh, I, I wish he would just, would, I would just hear from him. And we see here that he, that he has, that he has spoken. And he's written you a really, really long book that has to have special, very thin paper to make it so small. It's a really big book, and he's given it to us. And it shows us how uh, we fit into the story that he's telling, what he's doing in the world, what he's asking us to do, what, we, what he wants to commit our lives to. It tells us all that we need to know for life and godliness. You see, the Bible is our final authority. And Paul's next point is that this book that has been breathed out by God to us is also profitable or translated another way is useful. It has practical everyday uh, effects on our lives. And he gives us four of those ways that the word of God comes to bear on our lives. Four ways that it really should, should change us, should mold us, should come to bear on us. And so, so it's all of the scripture, not just some, not just the ones we like. It's all of it. We don't read it flatly. And it's breathed out by God. And here's four things it should do in your life. Number one, it teaches us. It teaches us. The Bible should be studied. And not just by smart guys in ivory towers who write books, but it should be studied by you. Whether you have a high school education or not, it should be studied by you, deeply studied by you. Because how do you know what is true? Are you just going to take my word for it? Have you met me? Are you just going to trust the other books you read about it? Should you just conform to what I or anyone else teaches you about this book? Or should you... Get in the book to know exactly what it says and what it means for yourself. You see, we live in a coffee mug verse generation where I'm asked all the time by people, Brent, I'm going through A, B, or C struggle right now, and would you just send me a verse to help me with a, this, this issue I'm having? Which on, on one part of that, I'm like, I'm glad that you want to go to the Bible in times of trouble. Like, that's good. But one verse pulled out of context isn't going to help you through whatever thing you're going through. Right? You need to know the whole thing, the whole story. You need to know all of it. Right? It's the reason that we have athletes who take Philippians 4.13 and paint it on themselves or whatever. And they give glory to God when they score a touchdown, not realizing that this verse has nothing to do with being able to do all things through Christ and throw touchdown passes. It has everything to do with being content in Christ. So when you don't throw the touchdown pass, Philippians 4.13. I can be content when I lost the game is the point of the verse. But we live in a coffee mug verse generation where we just want one little verse here or there. We don't want to dive deep in this difficult, hard, long book. But our world is growing more and more pluralistic by the day. That means that we take all of these different worldviews and philosophies and ideas and we blend them together. 
We blend Christianity with secular ideas. We blend Christianity with political ideas. We blend Christianity with Buddhist ideas. We blend Christianity with other philosophies, either intentionally or just by happenstance. And how are you going to know, how are your children going to know what it actually means to follow Jesus in a world uh, that is mixing all of these things together? And how are we going to know what is the pure and undefiled uh, truth Versus what we've mixed Christianity with these other things. How are we going to know? There's only one way to know that you've got to know the book. You have to know the book. Christianity, if not, will become so watered down, it will become, it will lose all of the power that it has to actually save you and change your life. The only way to know for sure is to study the Bible for ourselves, to study all of it, to learn of its beauty and of its wonder, to learn of its scary parts and to digest its complicated parts, its confusing, dense parts, and to see how all of these things come beautifully together in the culmination of Christ. If you, I think this might be like the best nugget from the sermon, so listen to this. If you do not know the truth of the scriptures for yourself, you will become a slave to what sounds right. And that is a really scary thought. And I think something that's already true of a lot of us. That while we are being preached at every day through the news, by friends, and especially being preached at through social media use. How do we know what's true versus what sounds good? How do we know what's true versus what sounds right? Things might tickle our ears and sound good and sound right, but how do we know that that's true? I was so proud of Ryan and our youth recently as they did this series uh, that he called TikTok Theology, where they looked at the most popular, you know, TikTok influencers on social media and the content they're putting out about Christianity. And he'd play the videos for them and they'd kind of talk about it, what was right, what was wrong, whatever, dissect it. And then they would look at the Bible and compare it to the Bible. And what they found is that most of the things that are being given to our kids as Christianity, as biblical fidelity, as biblical, you know, truth to digest this is actually really gross and really bad and really harmful and not good. But it looks good, it sounds good, and, and hey, I know this person, they're connected to those person, of course they're going to tell me the truth. But no, what they found out is like, it's actually mostly not very good at all. It's actually very far from the truth. And the only way they were able to discern that was when they compared what they listened to to what the Bible says. But if you're not reading the Bible and you're only listening to the TikTok videos or the real videos or whatever, how are you ever going to know? You're going to go down a path thinking that this is the truth. And have no idea you're walking in the wrong direction. How do you know the difference between what sounds good, what sounds right, and what is actually right? The only way is through deep, careful, intentional study of God's word. And no one else can do that for you. You have to do that. It's amazing when you think about it. That we are so privileged that we have the words of God. The words of God in multiple copies in our homes but yet rarely find the time to read them. When you really think about that, that God, the God who made the universe has spoken to you and given you his words in a book, and yet we rarely pick it up and actually study it. When you think about it, it's lunacy that we do that. And it's no wonder that our country and our generation is spinning out of control with all kinds of nonsense. 
because the things that sound good and sound true and sound right. When you actually take the time to study the word of God, it has an inevitable destination. When you study this book, it gets you to a particular place, and that's number two. It develops convictions. It develops convictions. Now, this word here, uh, when we read it, it's the word reproof. So so it's uh, reproof. And this is the only time that this particular Greek word is used in the entire Bible. And it's translated here as reproof. And the problem is I have no idea what the word reproof means. Like we don't, that's not a word we use. Like uh, I asked some people this week what they thought it meant. And, and they kind of thought what I thought it meant. We were all wrong. So I had to look it up. And there's another word in the New Testament that kind of has the same root. It's not the same word, but it kind of has the same root. And it's used in the book of Hebrews. And it's translated convinced. And when you look up the word reproof, it means conviction or to be convinced or to have proof of something. And so let me be clear what I mean by convictions. By conviction, I don't mean that the Spirit is convicting you of something you're doing wrong and that you need to change. No, no. What I mean by conviction is the, the, that you have developed firm beliefs, firm stances, that you are convinced of a truth and you are rooted by that conviction on which you stand. One of our core values as a church is being rooted in the gospel. We want to be rooted in the truth so that when the winds of culture change, when when it's no longer popular to believe in something, we do not give in or change with the pendulum swings of the world and of the culture. Instead, we are rooted and firmly established, holding to the truth and conviction, are unwavering no matter what the world wants to do out there. But how do we develop those convictions? Through deep study of God's word. You know, this happens all the time. When we loosely hold to some truth because we were told we should or parents told us we should or some TikTok video we watched told us we should or some movie told us we should, we hold to some truth. And then uh, something changes. Something changes, some new idea comes along or some problem arises. All of a sudden it's hard to hold to that truth. And it's inconvenient to hold that truth. And it makes you an outcast. It makes you weird. It, it might make you unpopular. You might get called names. And so you give up and you change and you let go of that conviction because it was based on nothing. It was based on something someone told you. It was based on some video you watched. Not because you were convinced by the scriptures. Not because your opinion was in the scriptures. Something that's outside of you and you believe to be the authoritative, timeless word of God. But because it wasn't based on that, you held this position lightly, and when something changed outside, it was easier to change your opinion. Church, we must study the Bible and develop convictions, convinced of these truths based solely on the Scriptures, not anything outside of them. There are lots of examples, so many examples, of how people have changed their convictions, their quote-unquote deeply, firmly held beliefs, because of outside forces. We could talk about uh, the people, like I talked about earlier, who said that the miracles in the Bibles, uh, the miracles in the Bibles weren't true uh, in order to get scientific people, minded people to come into the church. We could mention the sexual revolution and how churches and Christians are capitulating on values we've held for 2,000 years because of all of a sudden their mind has changed because the culture has changed on sexual ethics. We could talk about the rise of divorce among Christians, you know, 20, 30, 40 years ago. And how Christians who believed divorce was wrong changed their mind all because they fell out of love. We could talk about how Christians believed that we should hold our leaders to basic moral principles until a choice became between morality and power and we chose power. The list goes on and on. The question is, what will tomorrow's issue be? 
Will tomorrow's culture tempt or push us to sway and change? And what will it push us to sway and change on? We don't know. We don't know what tomorrow's issue is going to be. We don't know what the problems of next year are going to be. And so we can't prepare for them now without preparing for everything. We don't know what they're going to be, so we must study the scriptures deeply to have deep-held convictions today so that when the winds of culture blow tomorrow, we know where we stand. And no matter how convenient it is to change, we don't because we said, no, this is what the book has told us. This is what the book says. This is what God says, and we will hold the line. So this inspired, authoritative, God-breathed word should be studied. It should develop in us deep convictions. And third, it should correct us. He says it's good for correction. The Bible should correct and change us. All scriptures breathed out by God. It's profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction. Now, the Greek word here literally means straight. And some translations even put it to say that it straightens us out. That the Bible straightens us out because we are naturally bent and on the wrong path and the Bible should straighten us Onto the right path. That's what parents sometimes will say of a wayward child, right? Man, I'm going to straighten you out. <laughs> Listen up, I'm going to straighten you out. Don't, don't elbow your child. That's bad. Don't do that. Don't do that. Unless they deserve it. Just don't do it. I'm just kidding. <laughs> don't do it. You know when you're a kid, when you're a kid and you think you know everything? <laughs> and, and your parents or someone else tries to teach you something, and you overreact. And as a kid, you look at your parents and like, you're going to look at me and tell me I'm wrong? You don't know nothing, Mom. You don't know nothing, Dad. Like, and, and, and like, <laughs> as a kid, you look at your parents and you think, you didn't go what I'm going through. You didn't go through what I'm going through. You have no idea what it's like to experience A, B, or C. You don't know. Idiots. Right? And parents are just like, Listen to me. Just listen to me. I can help you. I completely understand what you're going through. I've been there 40 years ago. I was there too. Maybe 20. I don't know. I'm just saying a long time ago. Listen to me. And you pull out your hair because you could help them so much that they would only listen. But they're so arrogant that they think they, they, think they know it all and they've got it all figured out and you don't understand. Well, we are all like that kid and the Bible is our parent. We're all like that kid who thinks we understand and get it all. And the Bible is coming to us saying, listen to me. You're not thinking about that correctly. Read me. And we either ignore the Bible, think it's outdated or whatever. We don't read it. But instead, like our ignorant children, we should be eager to be corrected. We should be. That's, a, that's the thing that like our culture doesn't get. Right? We, don't, we hate to be corrected. We don't want to be wrong. But we should be eager to be corrected by the Bible. We should see the scriptures as the wise sage in our life, imparting wisdom and truth to us. We shouldn't be offended when the Bible corrects us. We should embrace it. We should welcome it. We should invite it. How better off would our kids be if they listened to us? And how better off would we be if we listened to the Bible and let it correct us too? In chapter 4 of this book, uh, 2 Timothy, Paul tells Timothy that a day is coming when people will look for teachers who will tell them what their itching ears want to hear. It is easy to seek out 
and read the things you already agree with. It is easy. We've become a society where we are always right and we don't want anyone telling us we are wrong about anything. It is easy to only surround yourself with people that are just going to puff you up and make you feel good about the things you think you already know. But it is actually so good and so freeing to be able to let go of that arrogance and to allow the Bible, this book that we believe is the word of God without error, to correct us. Because when God corrects us with his word, he doesn't gloat. When God corrects us, he doesn't rub it in our faces. When God corrects us, he's not belittling us. Instead, there is great joy to be had when the Father reveals new knowledge to us and straightens our path. Like it, it can just be received with joy. Like I, I was wrong. I, I thought this way and God, God got me on the right path. Like when you actually experience that, it's like this great thing. You're like, man, I want to do that again. God, show me where else I'm wrong. But we're scared of it sometimes. Don't be scared of it. Embrace it. But lest we think that the Bible only deals with our head, and correction actually comes in changing how we think, how we feel, and how we live. And our last phrase reminds us that ultimately the Bible should change our not only our thinking, it should not only change our affections, how we feel, but it should also change our actions. For we should become more like Jesus. So all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. When we have studied God's word and have then developed deep convictions about the truth, been corrected and set straight on the path, then also we're entering into training, a positive training where we, we are becoming righteous. Now, I want you to remember for a second, when we place our faith and trust in Jesus, all of our sins, past, present, future, are all forgiven. But something else happens. When we place our faith and trust in Jesus, not only are we forgiven of our sins, but the perfect righteousness of Jesus is given to us as if we did it ourselves, right? So God doesn't just look at us like a forgiven sinner. He looks at us as someone who's always obeyed him and perfectly righteous, okay? And so we have the perfect righteousness of Christ credited to our account, given to us. But the problem is our lives don't match the declaration. The way we live our lives don't match how we actually live. We have a status of righteous, but a life that isn't righteous. So we have this disjointed reality. So now we are on a lifelong journey of being trained into that righteousness that's been given to us. We are to become the men and women that God has declared us to be in Christ. Now we're never going to arrive at that perfectly until we die and God finishes the work. But still, we're on that process. I don't know what that was. (laughs) It was a sign I needed to drink of water. When we read the Bible... We should become like its author. We should become like its author. We should become more like Christ. It shows us how our emotions are out of whack, how our emotions can be wrong and how we should correct them. It shows us when we aren't loving as we should, and it shows us how to love our enemies and to love our neighbor. It shows us when we aren't forgiving as we should and how to forgive even those who have really hurt us. When we aren't living the mission of Jesus and making disciples, it corrects us and shows us that we should. It shows us not only negatively through correction, but also positively by this is what it looks like to live out the kingdom of God. It shows us here's how you love. 
Here's how you forgive. Here's how you show mercy. Here's how you make disciples. Here's how you think about and manage and work your money. Here is how you should live within your marriage. Here is how you should raise your kids and on and on. Lest we fall into that age-old mistake separating the sacred from the secular, the spiritual from the secular, we don't make that distinction that there are at least two different realities. Rather, we say the Bible comes to bear on all of life. That there is no secular, secular and sacred, but rather there's just the sacred. That all things are sacred. And the Bible is coming to us, telling us how to live and follow Jesus in all of life. Whether that's parenting, marriage, finances, work, everything. It comes to bear on all of it. And it is training us in how to live righteously in every sphere of our life. Around here, we say that we are trying to make Jesus essential in our hearts, lives, and homes, which is shorthand for all of life. We want to make Jesus essential in our finances. We want to make Jesus essential in our marriage. Jesus essential in our parenting. Jesus essential as, as a boss or as a, co- as a worker or whatever. We want to make him essential in every area of our life. And the Bible prepares, equips, corrects, trains us to live like Jesus in every sphere and every way for him and through him. Charles Spurgeon once said that a Bible that is falling apart usually belongs to someone who isn't. A Bible that is falling apart usually belongs to someone who is not falling apart. Why? Because someone who knows their Bible knows the truth, has convictions, isn't swayed by the pendulum swings of culture. They are rooted and secure and gladly receive correction. They are becoming more like Jesus and they can face uncertain difficult days because they know the hope that only the scriptures give. May we become a church that more and more knows this book, trusts in this book. May we become a church who doesn't sway with the changing world, but a church firmly rooted with deep convictions, unchanging as we are tethered to the timeless, breathed out word of God as our final authority. Let's become that church. Amen? Let's pray. Father, this morning we're thankful for your word. Your word that teaches us and corrects us and trains us in righteousness and gives us deep convictions. Father, would you help us to be people who open it up and read it? And when we have trouble reading it, trouble understanding it, trouble getting through it, ask for help. Just because we should read it doesn't mean we have to read it alone without help. God, help us to be a people that seek help to read this book, to know this book. Not just little verses here or there that we put on coffee mugs, but the whole daggum thing. From beginning to end, to know it all. And that seems like a massive undertaking, but we've got to start somewhere. So help us to start. Help us to open the book and read it. And would you teach us and equip us and train us and correct us and give us the deep truths that we need in a culture that is increasingly pluralistic and increasingly going mad and increasingly wandering from the truth. If you're here this morning and you do not believe or know Jesus, the one to whom this book points, I'd love to introduce you to him this morning. If you're here this morning and you're having a hard time reading this book, but want to, I'd love the chance to pray for you. If you're here this morning, you've got anything going on in your life and you just need some prayer, I'd love to pray for you. But God, help us to be a church. That stands on the book and nothing else. Sola 
scriptura. In Christ's name we pray, all people said. Let's stand together.